to Welcome. the first episode of the Men Creating Change podcast. My name is Aaron Booker. I am a third year transfer from Los Angeles, California, majoring in African American studies with a minor in Black Women Studies. And with me, I have. Hi, my name is Chris Yang. I'm the director of the Mosaic Cross Cultural Center. I'm here at San Jose State. Um, I am a in my 13th year as a student affairs professional. Um, prior to that, uh, I attended UC Santa Cruz for my undergraduate, majored in literature, um, and attended University of the Pacific for my graduate uh, in education. Hmm. I never knew that. Yeah. I've learned Fun facts. Fun facts. Well, we're here to learn all sorts of things today. So our conversation today is going to be about being human. Mm-hmm. And I know being human is one of those concepts that people think are a no-brainer. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm a human being. I, I eat, I sleep, I poop, all that good stuff. But do you really allow yourself to actually be human? So, as mentioned earlier, I just learned that Chris has a master degree. <laughs> I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I assumed that, you know, he went to school at some point, but I never I never inquired as to what he learned and why he learned it. So you got your bachelor's in literature. Mm-hmm. English language literatures. How did that come about? Well, um, I'm glad you asked. Um, so I grew up in uh, the San Jose area, in the Silicon Valley area. Um, I was here for... Um, most of my life starting in like fourth grade, um, and I graduated from high school in the year 2000. So just to kind of put a little timeline along things. So I was around the Silicon Valley right as the first dot-com boom was taken off. Right. So we're talking my high school years, 96 to 2000 was kind of the upswing of Yahoo, Google, um, not really Apple. Apple was kind of, they, they hadn't quite, uh, the iPod came out in 2001. So they were, they were right, they were right in that valley where their stuff was stupid. <laughs> um, but Amazon was established in Amazon, I think it was 1998, something like that. Or, I'm sorry, no, 1996, something like that. Um, so, the, these giant corporations were just starting out, and it was all tech. Um, and the, the, that was the, around the time when you saw, like, tech ads all the time, Monster.com and stuff like that. Um, Pets.com, I think, had, like, bought a stadium at one point, weird things like that. Wait, yeah. pause. What was Pets.com? Pets.com was an online pet supply retailer. Um, and they had a mascot that was a white and black terrier dog puppet that had a black patch over one eye. And the puppet would be in commercials. And the puppet was awesome. Uh, the, the website went out of business. And one of the things that got sold was the asset of the puppet mascot. I believe it got sold to Target, and Target, Target's like dog mascot came from that. Oh, 
I, I could be mistaken about the target part, but I remember the, the, the pets.com thing. Hmm. I never thought I'd ignore pets off. Like, if the internet was just starting, and you want mm-hmm. to order a pet from pet.com. It was pet supplies. It wasn't pets. Oh, pet supplies. Okay. Okay, so, I was like, I like dog food. I don't know if that's really, really what <coughs> I should have been doing back in the day. Like, yeah. you could have gotten, oh, I ordered you a new poodle. Yeah, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, it was, it was pet supplies. Anyway, um, so, so I came up in a time when we did a lot. There was a lot of computer science stuff. Um, a lot of people were, were um, uh, a lot of my friends, a lot of my peers were um, computer science majors. We were all, you know, children of immigrants. Um, I grew up in the Cupertino area. My high school is like 70% Asian. Um, we were all like first or second generation um, folks. So our parents were all engineers because um, that's where the money was in, in Silicon Valley. Um, so we were all on the cusp of that, like, right as the internet was kind of blowing up. And um, all of my friends were computer science majors. And we actually had, our, our high school had a computer science AP class. Um, and so we all took computer science AP. And... I remember hating it. It was the worst class I'd ever taken. I just didn't like grinding out code. And it was a coding class. I mean, that's all it was. It was a coding class. And I hated grinding out code. I hated sitting there for hours trying to figure out where I missed a semicolon or where I missed a closed parentheses bracket that would throw off your whole program. And I remember doing that for, for a semester and thinking to myself, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Um, I'm not going to be an engineer. Like, it's, it's not in me. Um, so the other class that I had in high school that I really enjoyed, or the only class I had in high school that I really enjoyed, was literature. And I was actually terrible at it because I never turned in homework. <laughs> so my teacher had no choice but to give me bad grades. And he would get upset at me all the time because I wrote really, really good essays and he'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Your essays are amazing. If you just turn in homework, even if even if you turn in 50% of the homework, you'd be fine. Uh, but I hated doing homework. Um, but the teacher was someone I really connected to. Okay. And so, you know, I love literature. And I got to college and I said, if I'm not going to do computers, I'm going to do something that I really love. And it was literature. Okay. Yeah. So you, then you went on to get a master's in education. Mm-hmm. Was that... That was because I wanted to do student affairs. So my journey to student affairs actually was a little bit different than other people's journeys. Um, people tend to have these journeys where they do like a bachelor's degree. Maybe they work for a year or two. They go back for a master's degree. Um, or, you know, they could go directly from one to the other. I finished my bachelor's degree... And I actually had um, a uh, eight-year gap between that and my master's degree, um, or not nine-year gap, nine-year gap, nine or ten-year gap. Um, I spent um, almost two years in Boston, um, living there, became a marketing manager, was just kind of hanging out. Um, came back, um, really wanted to work in higher ed. Um, I did all this student leader crap 
when I was an undergrad. So I was an RA, I was a PA, I was um, a program assistant, I was an orientation leader, I was a tour guide, I was all these things, as you anchors. Um, and kind of wanted to do it professionally. Didn't want to go to grad school. I was a terrible student. Um, <laughs> didn't want to go to grad school. So I, I didn't know any other way in. Um, everybody I talked to went to grad school. So um, when I came back, I got a job at UC Santa Cruz. Kind of an admin assistant role. But it was in student activities. And um, ended up working in Santa Cruz for seven years. And at that point, I was like 31, something like that. And I knew that it was like, we're getting close to do or die time. And if I didn't go to grad school at the age of 30, I was probably never going to go. So I made a decision at that point. It's now or never. And I went to grad school. Um, so it was, it was because I was already in the field. I wanted to be in the field. I wanted to learn more about student affairs. Um, there's a lot I felt like I was missing by not going to grad school. There's a lot of theory. There's a lot of, you know, research that you get through higher education that you that's really difficult to just do when you're doing the practice, right? So that was the stuff I felt like I was missing. So I really wanted to go to grad school at that point. Interesting. I think that um, your your journey getting here actually speaks to what a lot of people tend to grapple with every day. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people do go to college and they're doing the majoring in things that they don't really enjoy, but they enjoy the aspect that they can make a lot of money from it. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who want to go to grad school, but then they're like, I keep seeing all these anomalies pop up out of nowhere. You know, mm-hmm. somebody's in this position. Oh, I got here because uh, somebody saw me do one thing and mm-hmm. they like, here you go, do this. I've been here since, and nobody's ever questioned it. Yeah. Well, and I, and I don't want to get too far from, from the point of ultimately what we're trying to do with this podcast. Um, part of part of growing up as a, a man in the United States um, at this time um, comes with this kind of baggage of being capable, being smart, being, you know like a a go-getter, an aggressor, right? Um, And I felt like, you know, from a very young age, I was always raised with this idea of, like, if you're going to be a man, you got to know what the hell you're doing, right? Um, And if you're going to choose to do something, you better be uh, damn good at it, right? Um, And I don't know if I ever had, or I don't know if I was ever told that I was allowed to fail at things per se um and i feel like that's part that's part of like what society puts on our gender right right would you say that it's part of growing up being a man means that you're not necessarily allowed to feel human and or really be human it's like you have these expectations placed on you that you don't even necessarily believe in Mm -hmm. But yet here you are, and somebody's like, "You you gotta do this shit. Mm-hmm. You have to do it." And I'm not even gonna tell you why you have to do it. Right, but you have to do it. Right. And I think it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I I don't think I think it's you're not allowed to admit you're human in public, right? So like, of course, like you know, we all have moments of self doubt. We all have moments where we're emotional, whatever. 
But as a man, you're told, don't show people that side of you, right? If you're going to cry, do it in the closet by yourself. You know, shut away in your house. Don't let anyone see you, right? Um, yeah, and I do, I do think it's really heartbreaking. I think that a lot of the markers of success are given to us as accomplishments without necessarily asking about where the needs are or where the desires are. You're just told you have to do these things, right? You have to, you're told you have to provide financial stability. You're told that you have to have a job that you're, you're capable of doing. You're told you have to be promoted. You have to have some position of authority. Um, and none of these things are considered negotiable, right? Like, what does it even mean to provide financial security for your family in 2019, right? Um, you know, particularly as we're facing, like, all of the crap around, you know, the, the, um, where our economy is, our wealth gap, you know, particularly where we're faced with where our racial politics are and with, like, um, what folks of color can earn versus white folks, um, and as a man, you're not supposed to, you're told not to care about these things, right? Right. It, it's really weird how, even when you look at fame, like, systemically, the question isn't about masculinity at all. It's not about, you know, men or women. The question kind of becomes, what can you do to ensure your survival based on these concepts or structures that aren't even tangible? Mm. Like, I read an article a while back where... A scholar had did some work involving a group of men, and they asked, I want to say it was like either 50 or 100 men, how they defined being a man. I want to say that it was either 94 or 98 of those men had no idea. And only two to four of them knew what being a man actually was. Mm-hmm. And so we're having this, this dialogue where we're highlighting how these different narratives surrounding being a man is supposed to build into a a person or a being of some sort that's, you know, this social narrative of successful, this social narrative of likable. But all in all, we're taught to inherit a lot of society's ills and then imbibe them without seeking out a cure. And then told that at the end of the day, that's your best. Mm-hmm. And listening to your story and then thinking about my own, I've been to three different institutions mm-hmm. in my academic career thus far. I started at Cal State Fullerton, double majoring in mechanical engineering and computer engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first year, I was headstrong, which led me into a tailwind depression. And so I ended up uh, dropping out after my first year and going to a community college for the next four years. At the community college, I switched from engineering to communication studies. There, I kind of learned I like to work with people, but I like to work with people whom enjoy doing what they like to do. 
Because if you're not getting any pleasure out of what you're doing, I'm not getting any pleasure out of what we're doing. And at that point, it's no longer fun. It's tedious. And doing tedious things really doesn't help much get done if you don't have the discipline to do it. And then I found myself here. But it wasn't until I got here that I was actually allowed to really autopsy myself. And I know for people listening, the term autopsy, you know, you refer to like a dead body, but I wasn't really allowed to open myself up to see what made me tick. So I started entering into spaces that allowed me to view myself in different aspects. Like my major current is African American studies with a minor in black women's studies. But the beautiful thing about my department being set the way that it is, is a lot of the scholars who work in my department do work in fields that cross discipline with African American studies, but they utilize a bunch of different theories like critical race theory, critical race feminism, critical theory, so on and so forth. But these theories allow you to deconstruct a lot of things that you learned and grew up with and put things into a position where you can no longer just blame the systems or the structures you yourself have begun to perpetuate a lot of these things. And it's in that space that I would like for the men creating change to be able to, even if it's on a like a macro scale, invest in different changes. Mm-hmm. So one of the changes that we're gonna be working for working on moving forward is this podcast will include different guests that include men, women, and non-binary folks. Sorry, Crush. Crush is a snail. I just happened to move him over. A wooden snail. A wooden snail. That clarify that. uh, We don't need (laughs) people assuming that I'm cruel to a snail and nah, I'm good. I guarantee you it takes that context anyway, but you know, it happens. (laughs) Um, Another change that I would like to for us to at least start moving towards is the ability to teach what is meant by having a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times we don't really have conversations with people anymore. Mm -hmm. We kind of talk at them. Mm -hmm. And if we can't get our point across, we attack them. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't learned by now that violence doesn't get you too far then I think you should look at the different forms of violence and how you yourself use them without even being consciously aware of them. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, so that's ultimately the thesis of this whole thing, right? We're doing, we're trying to do a Men Creating Change podcast, trying to, trying to give some form or structure around the men creating change group that we're trying to develop here at San Jose State. And I think you're right. Like, one of the things that I would like to make sure that, that we cover that you, you mentioned that you touched upon is the fact that we have a hard time defining what it means to be a man without using terms that, that are, um, adversarial against female identity, right? We have a hard time defining what it means to be a man without talking about women, basically. 
Now, when you ask somebody, what does it mean to be a man? A lot of the answers you'll get is, has to do with women, right? Not a woman, right? Not like, don't, don't do these things. Don't do those things, right? Those kinds of things. Um, it's a very like aggressive adversarial kind of a relationship with the female identity. And, and by setting up this kind of polarity, this dichotomy, um, it creates a power structure, right? And as men, you know, we, we um, get to indulge in a patriarchal society. Like, our society is very patriarchal um, here in the United States. And all that means is that men have more power, right? And so we get to enjoy the privileges of power. And we're never asked, or we're very rarely asked, to be critical of what, what the male identity really means. And so when you ask men, well, why do you do these things, right? Why are you moving in that direction? Why are you following in that direction? Why are you performing these actions? Um, it's really hard for people to describe why these are so. Because from a young age, we weren't taught what it means to be a man. We were taught what it doesn't mean to be a man. And I think... Going back to the, the critical aspects you touched on, criticality is one of those things that's incredibly difficult to teach, but it's, inc- it's way more difficult to actually get people to understand. Because when we talk about being critical, we're not just saying, you know, oh, you need to like hit this person with something at their core. It's you have to break apart an idea, and then be willing to examine how power, oppression, and conflict exist within the space of this idea, and then how you manifest this idea inside yourself. Being critical requires a level of vulnerability and self-awareness a lot of people don't have. And if you want a really great definition of vulnerable, skip the dictionary and um, look up Dr. Brene Brown. She wrote a book in the early 2000s called um, Daring Greatly. And she defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And then... In a talk that she gave for Netflix recently, she poses a question. She wants you to think about a job or anything that you can do that does not involve some degree of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And I've asked people this question. We have not come up with an answer yet. Because everything that you do requires some level mm-hmm. in some capacity of these three things. Well, and what's what's funny is that those are the exact three things that we're told not to show as men. Right? Right. We're not supposed to be uncertain. We're not supposed to... Um, you know, be vulnerable to risk, right? Uh, we're not supposed to show emotions, right? And so when you beat that 
into somebody over and over again, right? We're socialized along our gender through all these different ways, right? By the time we are 25, right? We've already been told a million times by media, by family, by churches, by whatever, what it means to be man. And so you get to this place and you realize that what we've done is built this box, right? That we have not allowed men to explore vulnerability, to explore risk and uncertainty and, and emotional um, vulnerability. And instead, we've told men to pretend that side of you doesn't exist. And, and then we, we sit back and, and, and send you off into the world, right? And then you live the next 40, 50, 60 years of your life Pretending that you're this thing that doesn't feel, right? That you're never vulnerable, that you're never, you know, emotionally exposed. Um, I mean, how could it not cause damage? How could it not cause psychological harm and emotional harm? How could it not cause damage in our relationships with one another, with ourselves? Like... I don't know, to me it's kind of obvious, like, of course we're doing ourselves a disservice. Of course we're harming men. Of course we're harming other people because we are. Because we're producing broken people, you know? And it's fine to be broken, but we're never addressing the brokenness, right? We're never addressing the harm. We're never addressing the 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 thing that's at risk every time we look at this stuff. So, of of course we're, you know going to produce, you know, um, trauma, you know? We do a lot of damage. And I think one of the hardest parts, or at least one of the hardest parts of the solution, is, as my dad used to say, you can't fix what you don't know is broken. And as you mentioned, because it is consistently beat into people and they are socialized to believe that they do not have a problem, that the problem exists around them, that change should happen to everything around them but not to them, it's hard for me to acknowledge that they have a problem. Like, I have conversations with um, the men in one of the groups that I, well, I don't, necessarily co-chair anymore. Taking de- I definitely take like a back a backseat roles of that one. But we have these conversations where oftentimes I do find myself asking them, do you realize what you're actually saying? Just because you don't explicitly say a word doesn't mean that your thought or your statement does not convey it. And so it gets to this point where we start asking ourselves, what solutions do we have and how do we get there? And we find ourselves in this really weird area because you want to be able to tell somebody that they hurt you, but then you're not sure what comes after that. You know, you're going to tell this person, hey, what you did hurt me and it sucked. Then the person wants to be like, we're going to play the blame game into the oppression Olympics. And now we're all questioning whether or not society even has a actual image of accountability. 
And so part of the healing that we have to do is allowing one another to be held accountable for the harm that we've done to each other. Mm-hmm. Even without actually knowing it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If we're really going to see change in the world around the way our gender power dynamics have been set up, if we're really going to try to topple the patriarchy, <clears throat> we have to have men talking to men, right? That's the mission statement of men creating change. Men need to work with men to understand gender politics, to understand privilege, to understand patriarchy. Um, because it is not the responsibility of the oppressed to change the privilege, right? It's the responsibility of the privileged to affect other privileged people. Um, so we need to have these conversations, right? And like Aaron said about criticality, this isn't about being right or wrong. This is about examining our thoughts, our patterns, our beliefs, our rituals, our traditions, and figuring out where they come from and why they're so, and whether or not there are elements to them that we have thus far been um, ignoring or have been invisible to us, right? So, you know, as we get further along into these conversations, you know, the point necessarily isn't isn't even necessarily to, to find blame, right? The point isn't necessarily to even find a right way or a wrong way to do anything. The point is to make sure that we're having the conversations, um, that we can do critical analysis, um, and that we're inviting folks to join us in this critical analysis um, so that we can start to deconstruct where all this stuff is and comes from and lives. So moving forward, in order for the audience and ourselves to get the most out of these podcasts, I would like to make a request that you be willing to be vulnerable with us. Myself, Chris, and our future guest will have knowledge in certain arenas, but we will not know everything. So you're going to be learning something new along with us. You're going to be coming on a journey along with us. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. But in order to receive the message, I ask that you be willing to go to that place where a lot of that uncertainty actually lies. Because if you're not willing to go there, then you're going to have to start somewhere until you can get there. Because that's where growth lies. Mm -hmm. I know for me, one of my inroads is pop culture. I love pop culture. Um, I love, you know, comic books, superheroes, you know, I love games, board games, video games, uh, all things pop culture. And whenever, you know, I'm doing, uh, masculinity workshops or presentations, um, I sprinkle pop culture references throughout everything, right? Um, because I feel like that's... You know, it's one of the ways you get socialized, right? If you grow up in the United States in 2019, by the time you're conscious enough to remember things like your name or your family members, um, you're probably also already know who Batman is. 
you probably already know who The Rock is, right? Um, it's unavoidable. Um, so, you know, it's important to talk about pop culture. So one of the things I do is I talk a lot about pop culture. And whenever I do workshops and presentations, I tell people, start with your passions. If you're passionate about video games, start with the video game, right? If you're passionate about, you know, art, start with art. If you're passionate about comic books, start with comic books. If you're passionate about pro wrestling, start with pro wrestling. There's no dialogue or conversation or critical analysis that's too small or too irrelevant. Because patriarchy is everywhere, right? So if your passion is pro wrestling and you want to talk about patriarchy and pro wrestling, go for it, right? Somebody needs to be doing that work. Right. If your if your passion is about you know video games and you want to talk about patriarchy and Counter Strike, go for it. Somebody needs to do that work. Right. Find something you're passionate about. I guarantee you that there's a way in which you can be critical about the gender dynamics. Always. So moving forward, I'm not entirely sure if we'll have one of these at the end of every podcast, but. This is your first assignment. <laughs> um, the goal for men creating change is for you know men to have conversations with one another. My personal goal with my life is for people to have conversations with one another and make or at least inspire some sort of change. But for us in order for us to get there, we have to start with ourselves. So until the next episode, two weeks from now, <laughs> I would like for you to think about the things that you go through in life that you interact with. And before you decide to blame something or someone else, ask yourself and try to be as honest as possible. What is it that I do? Because whether we want to admit it or not, we all play a role in something. And if we want to start creating change, then we have to start with ourselves. Insert Michael Jackson reference. <laughs> Absolutely. Start with the man in the mirror. Absolutely. Uh, um, cool. So that's, I think, an amazing assignment. Um, and I imagine in two weeks' time, we'll have a chance to talk about it. We absolutely will. Great. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Chris. And we'll see you guys soon. Wait, pause. My bad. We'll see you all soon. I'm working on it.